Namo Lhasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Namo Atasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Namo Atasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Bodang Dhammang Sankang Namasami So anyway, tonight is the half-moon night at the end of October. Uh, the vasa came to an end some few days ago. And in about 16 days, we've got the Gatina festival. So we're into the Gatina season. And just as we've been a fairly static or sedentary community for about three months, so now everything's starting to, to move and to change. And we've um, lost both, for the moment anyway, Ajahn Umpo Samedo and Ajahn Amaro, both away, one in Ireland and the other in California. So we've lost the elders and fathers of our community. Um, so it falls for me tonight to try to offer a few reflections. And for anyone who, who studies or has the, the teachings of, of Long Por Cha, um, one aspect of his teachings always strikes me, which is that he's, he's um, trying to encourage people to look at nature in order to learn or understand more about the Dhamma. And it seems to me that uh, this particular season in the UK, that's autumn, is a particularly a vivid example of nature being able to teach us something. And it's how we see it, really, because these things can seem quite banal or everyday. And yet, if we look at them in a certain way, we can take them as a teaching. We can bring them into our own kind of understanding. So if you go out in the field or you go into the woods, you'll notice a riot of color compared to what there normally is there. All kinds of shades of leaf, red, yellow, brown, black, mottled, uh, green, and so on, either on the trees or, or thick, more and more thickly on the ground. Uh, some of the trees have shed all their leaves, almost all their leaves. Some hardly any as yet. So the whole sort of spectrum of uh, levels of shedding of leaves. And then if you look at the leaves themselves uh, on the ground, you'll, you'll see that some are kind of, kind of wet and sappy, others are a bit drier and sort of brittle, and others are quite crackly and so on. So all sorts and manners of trees and leaves. And supposing we were to, you know, just to think a minute about the life cycle of the leaf, if we go back a few months to, was it February, March, uh, or even perhaps a bit earlier now, the, the buds appeared, and then from the buds the shoots began to come out, and then from the shoots the leaves, and then the leaves grew to their full extent. And now we see them dropping to the ground. And of course the wind is blowing them, 
but it's not yet very cold. We've still got very mild temperatures out there for this time of year. But once the cold bites, we'll see a whole lot more leaves falling. Um, can you imagine someone going to a tree and saying to the tree, please, for my sake, this year, don't shed your leaves. Just stay the way you are. Or you say to a leaf, please don't drop off this tree. Just stay where you are, just, just for me. Or if we look at, say, this, this community, um, we've lived together for approximately three months. I mean, it's been roughly static, some changing as the lay support team has come and gone. Uh, but now we're into that situation where things will change pretty dramatically once the katina is over with. Uh, many, many of our members of the community will leave, heading off in different directions, and other people will arrive. And um, this is just how it is. But if we say to ourselves, well, I, I, you know, how do you feel about the community? Maybe it was a good vasa for you, you liked the community, you wish it could stay the way it is right now. If only the group could stay as it is right now, then I'll, I can be happy. Or maybe you had a vasa that was uh, not so easy, and there weren't so many uh, pleasant moments, and you're just hoping, oh, once this vasa is over, Thank goodness for that, we'll all separate and go our own ways and things will be better. So we can look into our own biases, see the reactions we have to change. Do we want change to occur or would we rather it didn't occur? <clears throat> now, uh, Something like, uh, I don't know, a few days from now, uh, we're having this COP26 meeting in Glasgow. It's a big, the biggest meeting since, I think, Paris to discuss the issues of climate change and what governments and nations can do to try and ameliorate that problem to, to lessen the impact of climate change. And so, of course, the media is full of uh, discussion about it and predictions and speculation. Who's coming, who isn't coming? What's the temperature we could sort of get the uh, the rise temperature rise to limited at, sort of 1.5, 2 or 3 or whatever degrees, and so on and so forth. And then what's the impact on, on everyday people? So I did hear one little uh, exchange, which was they went to some primary school children in Glasgow. Glasgow is where the meeting will take place. And um, they sort of produced a climate change uh, expert for these children, and they asked the children to put questions to this expert. So the questions were sounded very sort of um, sophisticated and adults, so I presume they got the questions from their parents. But one of the questions was, um, what can we do to try and you know, ameliorate this problem or, or not, not lessen the impact. So this expert started talking, you know, sort of everyday details and he went into this. He said, uh, one thing that came across to me was how careful he was being. 
not to sort of try to disturb people's jits too much. And I think the same can be said of the politicians. I think it was a week or two ago that the Prime Minister said, uh, we can do these things and not a hair shirt in sight. So it's quite a phrase, not a hair shirt in sight. And what that means is we don't have to give anything up. We don't have to make any sacrifices. We don't have to renounce. I think that's what he meant. So anyway, this expert was being asked what, what we could do, and he came up with five ideas. One was, well, he's talking to the children, right? So you could walk or cycle to school rather than coming by car. That was one of his suggestions. And you know, if, you, if, you're, if your family has got a petrol car, well, it could change that for a, an electric car. And the third thing was, well, you could look at your... If in your family what you eat and maybe you could have one or two days a week when you eat you go without meat or go without dairy products and then another one was well um, you don't have to go shopping so much it's good if we reduce the amount of shopping we do um, do you really need a new toy maybe you can get your parents to buy you a second hand one and then finally he was saying something like well um you know, does your family go abroad for holidays and does it really need to, you know, use, go by air? Could it kind of uh, reduce that? Could it, you know, could you go to somewhere else? <clears throat> so anyway, um, I'm not going to go on about climate change, but just as this kind of example of what I'm talking about. So <clears throat> if we think about how people might react to this, adults or parents, the first thing about sending the children by to school by by cycle or or by some other means that isn't a petrol driven car probably most of them would go along with that so long as their child was safe that would be their worry i think what about the second one um changing to electric well many people are considering this if they can afford it here we're considering it we're thinking of putting in or well, i think we're planning to put in some electric charging points, and gradually shift over to electric vehicles. And then we come to the third one, which is about changing your diet. And I think many people would say, well, I'm not, you know, I've been eating meat all my life. Why should I have to stop doing that just because of you and your opinions? And then the fourth one was about not shopping, not buying new toys or presents for the children. And I can imagine many parents saying, well, I, won't feel I can't feel happy unless I buy something even better than what I had as a child, if I, unless I give them a better deal than I had. And if I give them a second-hand present, they'll think I don't love them. And then the last one was about fl not flying to exotic destinations. And I can imagine people saying, well, of course, some people will go along with these ideas, but some will say, well, actually, I've been flying to Tenerife or Cyprus or the Bahamas for the last five years, and I don't see why I should have to change that. I, I love my little holiday in the sun. So you can have, expect all kinds of reactions to these kinds of uh, suggestions. And that's why they're being so very careful about them. 
So the nub of the matter, it seems to me, is you know, human desire and attachment to desire. So desire bring, has brought us to where we are now. Human desire, attachment to desire, has brought us to the state we are now, where, you know, particularly in the last 250 or 300 years, we've managed to, through the Industrial Revolution and what's gone on since then, we've created a much more comfortable life for ourselves. We've lived longer, we're healthier, uh, we eat better, uh, we, we have a much higher standard of comfort. Um, and we have many more opportunities than people did 300 years ago. It's a completely different world because of all that we've done. But at the same time, now the planet is warning us that we've gone perhaps a bit too far. So we could say that mind is the, for, the, mind is the forerunner, desire is the driver. And this is the point we've got to now. <clears throat> so I think it is useful to consider what you know, the Buddha's teaching uh, looks very much into the nature of desire and attachment. This is you know, a very relevant kind of teaching for today. Um, and I came across one particular little uh, dialogue where the Saka, king of the ruler of the gods, or the 33, I think it's called the 33, he wants to come and find the Buddha. He, he wants to ask him a few questions because he's been to other ascetics and Brahmins and he's gotten nowhere. He hasn't had an answer that satisfies him. So he's trying to find out where is the Buddha. And he finds him in a cave somewhere. And he goes there, he, he goes there with his retinue and he asks another person or God to go in and sort of talk to the Buddha and act as an intermediary and finally the Buddha says yes of course he can come in and ask his questions so in goes Saka king of the, or ruler of the gods and his retinue into this cave and the Buddha says yes you're very welcome to put these questions so the first question is uh, sir what are the fetters or what are the bonds that bind human beings and gods and other beings Beings that want to live uh, without hostility, without hatred, without harming each other, uh, without malevolence, and in peace. What are the bonds that make them live in a way that is completely the opposite? So they are hostile, harming each other, um, malevolent, and so forth. So the Buddha's reply to this is the bonds that drive beings to behave in this way and think in this way are the bonds of jealousy and avarice. These are the, the fetters that uh, lead to people behaving in these uh, unskillful and harmful ways. So Saka has a whole list of questions. So the next question is, but sir, what are, what are the grounds, what are the conditions for the arising of jealousy and avarice. Uh, through the presence of what do jealousy and avarice arise? Through the absence of what do they not arise? 
So the Buddha's reply is, well, jealousy and avarice arise through the presence of like and dislike. Where there is like and dislike, jealousy and avarice arise. Where there is not like and dislike, they do not arise. So again, Saka goes on. So what, what are the grounds, what are the basis, what are the conditions for the arising of like and dislike? And now the Buddha comes to it. He says, the conditions for the arising of like and dislike, or the condition, is desire. And of course, Saka goes on, what is the condition for the arising of... By the way, each time he expresses his enthusiasm and his satisfaction, his gladness with the replies, what is the arising, what is the condition for the arising of, of desire? And the Buddha says, his answer is this, the, the condition for the arising of desire is thinking. When we think about things, desire arises. When we think about nothing, desire does not arise. And again, Saka continues, so what, uh, you know, what are the conditions, what are the uh, factors for the arising of thinking? And the Buddha's reply is the, you know, the basis for the arising of thinking is the tendency to proliferation. The tendency to proliferation. This is what gives rise to thinking. So Saka then, ten, he changes tack. He starts to say, well, what, what is the practice that leads a monk to do what is necessary to bring to cessation the tendency to proliferation? And then the Buddha comes back to describing two happiness, two kinds of happiness, two kinds of unhappiness, two kinds of uh, equanimity, Two kinds of bodily conduct, two kinds of conduct of speech, and two kinds of goals that we pursue. And he says, in each case, I saw that one was more skillful than the other. One kind of happiness was more skillful or more promising the other than the other. And the difference being this, that one form of happiness uh, results in the increase of unwholesome factors and the decrease of wholesome factors. That's the one to avoid. Another kind of happiness results in the increase of wholesome factors, the decrease of unwholesome factors. That's the one to pursue. That's the one to cultivate. And the same with all the others. The equanimity, the unhappiness, the bodily conduct, the speech, conduct by speech, of speech, and finally the pursuit of the goals. So here, Saka is very pleased with all these replies. They, they really are, seem to, to help him. And uh, he then talks about restraint of the senses or asks about that. And the Buddha says, well, there are sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and mental objects. And some are useful or some are skillful to follow and others are not. And finally, uh, Saka says, well, sir, are, do all ascetics and Brahmins teach the same thing? Do they have the same doctrine, the same discipline, and do they aim for the same goal? And the Buddha says, no, they don't. No, they don't. And only those who have uh, reached the destruction of craving, only those are really proficient. Only those have really 
fulfilled the goal and achieved peace, the destruction of craving. So that's his kind of final answer to succor. So we can contemplate this, contemplate what the Buddha has said in this dialogue. And yet it seems completely out of reach. When you think about desire, we relate to our desires as though they're part of us. Our desires are what distinguish us from somebody else. Our wishes in life, our aims in life, uh, what make us who we are, it seems to us anyway. They're a vital part of our being. Now Ajahn Chah, just like the Buddha talks about two kinds of happiness and so on, Ajahn Chah talks about two kinds of path. So one is the path that leads to more suffering. The other one is the path that leads to the end of suffering. So this is what he talks about. And he says, both of these paths are born from the same place. They give, they're given birth in the same place, which is our mind, our heart. This is where they both begin. So what is this more worldly path? He describes them as twin paths, in fact. This worldly path is the path of the eight worldly dhammas. So some of you may be familiar with the idea of the eight worldly dhammas. Others may not, so I'll just mention them. So basically, they're sort of four pairs. The first one is praise and blame. Then there's gain and loss. Fame and obscurity, or fame and disrepute. And finally, happiness and unhappiness. So these are the worldly winds or the worldly dhammas. And it's because we chase the worldly dhammas, most of us, that we, we are whirled around in samsara. So if we look at these worldly dhammas, what Ajahn Chah is saying and what the Buddha also is teaching is that uh, nothing is certain. So we grasp onto, for example, if we grasp on to praise, how many people here want to be blamed? Anyone ready to be blamed? Actively wanting blame? Most of us want to praise, don't we? And I can remember back in the early days of this monastery, uh, Lungpur Samedo, when he set it up in the 80s, it, these seemed to be halcyon days in terms of him receiving praise. He was really being praised all over the place. He was um, becoming a star in the Buddhist firmament in Britain. He was invited to become the president of the Buddhist society. But then only a few years later, he was being blamed. So a few things had happened, didn't seem to be going quite so well, and enormous amounts of blame were being hurled at him. And this is this is the nature of these worldly winds that you grasp onto one of them and it takes you to the opposite. Because things change. So too with, with gain and loss. Most people want to get more. They want more money, more property, um, 
more possessions, perhaps they want people around them. And when, when the grasping or the, the, uh, the gain of these things leads round to the opposite, to loss, it can be absolutely devastating for people. They feel absolutely destitute or, or lost because they've uh, lost their property or their car or whatever it is or their money or perhaps somebody that they were you know, very attached to. So that's gain and loss. Fame and obscurity. Some people want fame, not everybody. But most of us want to have a good name. And some people are happy with obscurity. But most of us don't want to have disrepute. We don't want to be thought of badly by others, spoken of badly by others. And yet, you know, if you look at famous people, celebrities, and people who desire dis desperately to, uh, to be famous, sooner or later, uh, it swings around on them and they're caught in some kind of uh, disrepute or, or, or bad publicity. And finally, there's happiness and unhappiness. And how many people are willing to vote for unhappiness? Don't, I don't worry about happiness, just give me some unhappiness. <clears throat> but the very reasons that we build, or the very causes that we build our happiness on can change. So for example, if you are somebody who loves Samravati as it is right now, maybe you love the sala, maybe you love the library, it's a uh, you know, pleasant places to be. And you say, well, if only uh, these things can remain the same, then I will love Amravati and I can be happy. But only, what, how many months down the line, they're going to begin to demolish the sala and demolish the library. So if your happiness is built on these things, it soon will evaporate. And I have had uh, a lay supporter I know write to me and sort of, in great distress about the coming destruction of the sala. So when, in, in <coughs> Lung Por Cha's terms, he equates happiness and unhappiness as the same thing. He says they're the same thing. Happiness is just a slightly more refined version of unhappiness. because neither are peaceful. When we're grasping for happiness or hoping to hold on to something to bring us happiness, we're not at peace because that happiness can be threatened at any time and someone can take it away from us or something can take it away from us. So he compares happiness and unhappiness to the head and the tail of the snake. So you grab onto the head of the snake and it bites you you grab onto the tail of the snake and it curls around and bites you again. So if we look at these worldly conditions and um, the worldly path, it can you know, at times be very alluring to us, but if we start to see through it, then maybe we should examine the other path, the path that leads to the end of suffering, which of course in the terms of Buddhist, the Buddhist teaching is the Noble Eightfold Path. This path is described as in three different groups, 
virtue or morality, concentration and wisdom. Uh, eight different factors working in three different groups. The wisdom group, of course, is right in right view and right intention. The morality group or virtue group is right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then the last group, which is the concentration group, is right effort, right mindfulness, and right wisdom, right, sorry, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And the aim of this practice is to cultivate wisdom, to penetrate wisdom, to understand the nature of desire and craving and so forth, to see into these things properly. So Ajahn Chah talks about uh, two kinds of mind. There's the, the natural mind, and then there's the trained mind. So we come into this world, we're born into this world, we bring with us greed, hatred, delusion, that's why we're here. This is the natural mind. And the natural mind is a bit like a, an animal in its urges and instincts. So if we follow those urges and instincts, um, these are the things that do you know, inevitably take us to, to suffering. But that's what the, the mind is like. We have these very strong urges and instincts. It's like a blind creature. So what Ajahn Chah says we have to do is to instruct the mind and to train it. And that is what following the Noble Eightfold Path is about. So the Buddha understood about wanting and not wanting. He understood these things and that's why he was able to transcend them. And what he's saying to us is, yes, it's, you have to know about the world, but uh, don't, be, don't be led into the ways of the world. Don't let the, 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 the mind run into the ways of the world if you don't want to suffer. So, <clears throat> how do we do this? How do we work with wanting and not wanting? How do we work with desire? Well, as we cultivate this continuous awareness of things arising in the mind, we start to understand that desire is the birthplace of the world. This is where the world begins. So as we watch what arises in the mind moment by moment, and if we employ the characteristics of existence, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self, in examining these things, we then start to begin to grow in awareness as to 
you know, they, they are uncertain. That the, the kinds of things that we relate to or grasp onto, the hopes, the dreams, the ambitions, uh, are uncertain and, you know, they are not a place of safety. So, just knowing moment by moment, anicca dukkha anatta, this is not certain, this is not sure. This is the teaching, of course, that Ajahn Chah offers us. And if we're really practicing, then we can also experiment with undercutting or going against the flow of desire. So we can deliberately choose to work against desire, to trip it up, to find a way of um, uh, undercutting it. So for example, if you're thinking about the average monastic day, this could be an ideal circumstance in which to try to undercut desire. So for example, if you've got to get up at four o'clock in the morning, maybe you don't want to get up at four o'clock in the morning, so you make sure you get up at four in the morning. Maybe you don't want to go to the puja, so you make sure you go to the puja. Maybe you don't want to do the chore, so you make sure you do the chore, and so on. You don't want to go to the work meeting, but you attend the work meeting anyway. Um, and then after the meal, maybe you don't want to do the washing up, but you go anyway and do the washing up. So this kind of experience that we can have here is an ideal uh, testing ground for working against desire, if it's unwholesome, and working with wholesome desire. So ultimately this practice is about transcending that, that aspect of our mind, the, the, the desire mind. We can have wholesome desires and unwholesome desires. Uh, for example, if, if we go, going back to the subject of climate change, I, I think it's quite a wholesome desire to have, to, to want uh, species to be able to continue so that they don't become extinct, hoping that the human species can continue, hoping that the other animals and creatures on the planet can continue, and that there is a safe and habitable world for them to live in in 50 years' time. These are wholesome desires. They're not bad desires. But if I want to work against climate change, um, and, I, and, and I attach to those desires, then I'm out of balance. My mind is out of balance. Uh, it, you know, it leads to heat and confusion and maybe to aggravation if I cling to those desires. So <clears throat> just as in Dhamma practice, what we're trying to cultivate is uh, a practice that lets go of expecting results. When you first come to practicing Dhamma, when you come to the monastery, obviously there is desire of some sort. We call it chanda, or if you like, a wholesome desire. Uh, 
we come here with the wish to achieve something, to get some kind of a result. And that's why we practice, that's why we participate in the community. But as, the, as we develop this practice, as we walk further down the path, then what we have to do is let go of that expectation of results and instead just practice for uh, a mind free of grasping, uh, mind letting go of attachments, just doing the right thing, just being in the moment and being free of, um, free of attachment. So too, I think, with, if, we're, if we are working against the problem of climate change, whatever we're doing, whether we're you know, sacrificing for it or working for it in the community, working against it in the community, or trying to, to change how we, uh, how we live in order to help the planet, we may look around at other people and they, maybe they're not making the same effort or the same sacrifice. And so it would be very easy to criticize or to complain or whatever. And if we attach to those, you know, there must be results. We must see the, you know, this, that and the other as a result of my sacrifices. Then, of course, that is a cause for suffering, for more suffering and imbalance of the mind. So just as we walk this path uh, and we let go of the expectation of results, so to perhaps in dealing with climate change, that would be a very good thing to do. So we're talking about you know, uh, renunciation and relinquishment. Uh, the worldly view is that this is a terrible thing to have to endure if our standard of life uh, deteriorates or we have a, a lower standard of living this is something terrible but this is where in a community such as this and with the practice and the teaching that we try to embody we can actually say that the opposite is true that um, letting go of possessions can bring a lot of pleasure or joy you know one is freer one feels lighter um, having fewer expectations means a, a more peaceful mind, fewer demands on, on, on the planet or on other people, a more peaceful mind, and a heart more at ease. So <clears throat> to my mind, this is where the practice really takes us, or if we are practicing in the right way, will take us, should take us. And if we can try to embody that and articulate that, in the society when we're doing a great service to that society right now. So at the end of the day, what this teaching and practice is all about is suffering and the end of suffering. And um, <clears throat> rather than expecting <clears throat> to get what we like, as Ajamaro teaches, we need to like what we get, being at ease with conditions as they are. So I'd like to offer this consideration for your consideration tonight. If it's of use, please take it away. And if it is not of use, please forget it. Thank you very much.
Sadhu, 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 Sadh